Good morning. You wondered what I was going to say, didn't you? (laughs) Where to begin? For David, it was a giant. For Nehemiah, it was a wall 800 miles by camel away. We've all had our giants. Some of us have our giants right now. We've all had our walls. Where to begin? And I think one of the things I've learned in life is that beginning is half done. It's just taking that first step many times. Where to begin for me, it's hard to admit this, but it was 37 years ago, long time. A lot of you aren't even that old. I was told to go plant a church. The organization under which I was serving required that I go to a church growth seminar every year. And so Sherry and I would go, and there at the seminar we would learn of a thousand things that are essential, 500 steps that are required, 300 necessary ingredients, 200 things to avoid, 100 formulas that, and 50 strategies for. And by the time we got to the end of that, I was just so overwhelmed, I, I could hardly think. And then to top it off was the keynote speaker. From a 10,000 member megachurch with a $10 million budget with a bathrooms that were bigger than the church, the whole church that we had. And I was supposed to go, ho- go home and be enthusiastic. What I really felt was absolutely, totally inadequate. Just ready to pull the chain and flush. There, there was just no way this poor little boy off the Indian reservation could even begin to be adequate with these superstars that were paraded before us. To make matters worse, when we came to town to plant the church, I had six contacts. Boy, I got a place to start. The first one I went to was a former pastor who was now a a professor in town. And I went went to him and he said, you know, I don't mean to discourage you, but you really probably should have gone to another, cha- another town to plant a church. There's already too many in this town. Well, n- needless to say, that wasn't where the place to start. <clears throat> and to make matters worse, just down the street from where I lived, there was a mega church. And it was of the charismatic persuasion. And, you know, they taught if you would just uh, do this and that and whoop and holler and whatnot, and you'd have all the power of God, and things are going to happen. Well, I'd been down that road, and that's just one, that wasn't the way it is. So what I did, I did exactly what Nehemiah did. It says he wept over the walls that were burned, and the, the reputation of a God was in shambles. And, and he wept about it, and then he got on his knees and prayed. And that's exactly what I did. I went into my my closet. You heard the term a prayer closet. Well, my closet became a prayer closet. I went into my closet for a day and a half, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And here's what happened to me. 
No wonder you didn't. There it is. That's frustration. That's how I felt. I clicked it and that didn't show. <clears throat> when I went to the prayer closet, I came out knowing that by his divine power, he has given to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. I didn't need to wait for something more. I learned from Ephesians 1 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I do not need to wait for some second baptism of the Holy Spirit or speaking in tongues or whatever. My Bible tells me every spiritual blessing is mine already. And that in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And I am complete. All things, every spiritual blessing, complete. And that I fall short in no grace. These things are available to all of us. They are true of us in Christ. Because in, by one spirit, we all, not just the select few, but we all, have been baptized into one body in Christ. That, God said, is your dowry. Get up off your knees and get going. That's what I came to in my prayer closet. Before I went in, I was fearful, intimidated, paralyzed. I came out with the faith factor. <clears throat> now, maybe I just missed it, but at those church growth seminars... I don't remember hearing a whole lot about faith, and I don't remember hearing one word about prayer, nor about God's sovereignty, the power of a resurrected Christ, the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, and the fact that God specializes in demonstrating his power in weak vessels. It's the way of the world to choose superstars. When God wants to get something done, he chooses weak vessels, vessels of clay, as we read in 2 Corinthians. So, as we begin this morning again, what is your giant? What giant are you facing in your life? What mountain is God asking you to climb? What wall is he asking you to build? And, and maybe it's an interior thing. Maybe there's a a stronghold in your life that you know you need to face, but just haven't been willing to. Kind of one of those round to it's. I'll get around to it when I get around to it. <clears throat> so, when trying to figure out where to begin, when facing life's giants and uh, rebuilding the walls, as what I said, simply say pray and then just watch God do his thing. No, <clears throat> true faith, and I'm talking true faith. I hear a lot about faith. True faith always has feet. So we begin the first of uh, three things for Nehemiah. First was being spiritually alert to recognize opportunity when God brought it to him and to be prepared to respond. <clears throat> Before Nehemiah rebuilt the walls, he wept over the ruins. Before he began to move, he bent to pray. He made sure that his agenda 
was God's agenda. And that is so critically important. Through, through my life, I, the more time I spend in before the Lord and with the Lord and before the Word, coming to a, an absolute assured conviction that the direction I'm going is what He wants. When I, when I have that conviction, I can then move forward in confidence. There are some things that are just absolutely clear in the Word of God. You don't even need to pray about it. You know that this is God's will for your life. It says so in Scripture. Then we need to proceed with confidence. And Nehemiah was able to do that because he had wept over the walls. He had prayed and fasted before God, and God had crystallized the vision of what he was to do. And I think this was all possible because Nehemiah was a man who, who bloomed where he was planted. This wasn't something so out of character after all. Nehemiah was a man that was in touch. He was connected to his God Almighty. And it was not, this was nothing so far out of step, really, because he'd been blooming where he had been planted already. The Jerusalem Wall Project was just a natural outgrowth of a life that found its significance in God. Now, how about you? Where do you find your significance? This is a really important question. I, I've been down that road where I've sought significance through achievement, through performance, through what other people say, till I learned that the only sure and real significance is found in knowing who I am in Christ. It is Jesus that puts value to me. He died for me. That's pretty significant. Well, four things stand out here which define the quality of Nehemiah's life. In chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, came to pass in the month of Chislev. Chisif? Chislev. Chislev. <clears throat> What happened after Nehemiah prayed? Clear back here in chapter 1, in the month of Chislev, which would be the month of December, he wept over the walls of Jerusalem when he, when he talked to Hananiah and his buddies from Jerusalem. They told how the walls were burned, or excuse me, the walls were torn down, the, the walls were burned, and the people were living in reproach. And it was a reproach against the name of God Almighty because it was the holy city, it was the city of God and that bothered Nehemiah as well it should have. And so he prayed. He got on his knees and prayed. And what happened after Nehemiah prayed? Nothing. At least for four months. In chapter 2, verse 1, it came to pass in the month Nisan. That is not a car. That is a month. The fourth, four, four months... During that four months, Nehemiah didn't try to make something happen. He waited. One of the hardest things God ever calls upon us to do is to wait. That's tough duty. But that's what he did for four months. But once God directed the way, he was tireless in his effort. In verse 1 it says, I had never been sad I had never been sad 
in the presence of the king before. Why is that significant? Under Medo-Persian law, if you had a sad countenance in the presence of the king, all he had to do was tilt his scepter towards you. They'd come and put a hood over your head and you lost your head outside the door. It was a capital crime to be sad in the presence of the king. And, and said to the king, May the king live forever. The city, the place of your father's tombs lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, What is your request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. He knew, because he prayed, because he was convinced that he was on God's wavelength, because he had prayed, because he had wept, he knew why. And then it says he, in verse, in verse, um, verse 4, what is your request? And he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah didn't get down on his knees, fold his hands, and close his eyes and pray. He's standing, addressing, uh, talking with the king. And this is one of those quickie prayers like that, and he was gone, but he prayed. Been there? Done that? Many times. And those prayers are just as valid as any other kind. For four months, Nehemiah's faith had been exercised in actively planning every foreseeable contingency. Let, Let me read on. The king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed, verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the timbers to make beams for the gates and the citadels which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and get this, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me, according to the good hand of my God upon me. Now you talk about divine audacity. We talked about that last week. For four months, Nehemiah had been praying, and he had been planning, and he had been preparing, but he was waiting on God to open the door before he sprung the the trigger. What divine audacity, a king who could with one flick of the wrist have his head off. Nehemiah swallows hard. He prayed a quickie. He said, I was terrified. But then he spoke to the king his request. And God had prepared the heart of the king to grant it. An amazing story just in itself. There's a principle here. The presence of faith does not mean the absence of planning. 
The presence of faith does not mean the absence of preparation. And Nehemiah hadn't missed a trick. He even addressed the red, red tape issues, planning and zoning, building permits, materials appropriation, security, even construction of his own residence. You talk about being audacious. He put it all out there before the king at the first interview. Right in the middle of all of this, Nehemiah, well, let me finish here. He knew when management send me that I may build, uh, and, and he set a time, and he knew what? He knew the method. If it pleased the king, let letters be given, and, and so on. But right in the middle of this, Nehemiah says in verse 8 at the end there, according to the good hand of my God upon me. In Leviticus 26, 8, it says, five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Was it D.L. Moody who said, the world has yet to see what one man fully committed to God could accomplish. And I might add, if that one man starts with the confidence that his efforts are God-ordained, God-directed and God-blessed, five men can put a hundred to flight and a hundred, ten thousand Nehemiah is reflecting upon the good hand of God. He recognizes this is nothing about Nehemiah being some kind of superstar. It was about a plain, simple man who was a cupbearer of the king, who had the audacity to believe God, to make preparation just in case, and wait for God to move. And when God moved the heart of the king, he was ready. Verse 9 begins, Then I went. He went to the governors in the region beyond the river. Between verse 8 and verse 9 is an 800-mile camel ride. And I gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So many times... We get all hung up taking that first step. And that's when inertia sets in. Right now, many of you perhaps, maybe I'm sure myself as well if I just sit and think a little bit, there are things that I know I I need to, should, or want to. But they've been there a long time. And the longer they stay, the harder it is to, to take action. That's called inertia. And I looked that word up in the dictionary, and I had to put this on the, on the screen because I just love that definition. Resistance to motion. That describes a lot of Christians. It describes a lot of churches. Resistant to, to motion. Inertia. <coughs> that had not set in in Nehemiah's case. <clears throat> Inertia or faith to begin? I think the second key to discovering where to begin is after recognizing the opportunity is researching the obstacles. Verse 11. 
So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night. I had a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Now there was there, excuse me, nor was there any animals with me except the one on which I rode. And I went up by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no man for the, no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told them, told the Jews, the priests, or the nobles, or the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. <coughs> and I told them of the hand of my God, which, was a, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. And so they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to the good work. There are four things here. Thank you. The measure of the man. I told no one what God had put in my heart to do. His agenda came from God. When's the last time God spoke something into your heart that he wanted you to act upon? That may be a new concept for some. But I've learned as I, my heart is sensitive to those about me, as I am before the Lord in prayer, before the open book, regularly, God speaks things into my heart through his word. And that's what had happened with Nehemiah. My question is, who is setting the agenda of your life? Are you getting it before God or the expectations of others or selfish ambitions? Is your heart prepared in such a way that God can place his agenda in it? Nehemiah certainly was. And then the measure of the mission, he says he, he went out by night and viewed the walls. He inspected the rubble, the disrepair, There were feet to his faith. He was trusting God. He was depending upon his enabling power, but he was doing his part. He inspected the walls. Proverbs says, He who answers a matter before he gets the facts is a fool. Luke 14, 28, Jesus said, Which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? There's no substitute for planning. And you can't plan until you're informed. And there's no substitute with being informed. Faith does not mean, the presence of faith does not mean the absence of information or of planning. And once he measured the task, this I find so very interesting. He measured again his motivation. You see the distress in verse 17. Come, let us build the wall 
that we may no longer be a reproach. He's reminding them and he's reminding himself it's not about him. It's about the reproach toward them and God because of the conditions in Jerusalem. It was an internal versus an external motivation. And this is just a kind of a a checkup. Uh, I find that it's very easy to waver in our motivations. We might start off strong, properly motivated, going in the right direction, but in the process, we weary or we whatever, and pretty soon our motivations become a little bit off-center, and we can get off-course. So I kind of see that reminder there as a a mid-course motivation reminder. And finally, Nehemiah measured the mandate. He says, I told them of the hand of my God upon me, and also of the words of the king. And so they said, let us rise up and build. One can say that he has a ministry mandate all he wants. But until these three things are in the mix, we must wait. Mandate or not, we must wait until we are together in the project. When we understand that the opportunity is there and that God is directing it, when there's that kind of confidence, then God's in it. So where does this leave us? Preparation, recognizing the opportunity, planning, researching the obstacles, and then proceeding, resisting the opposition. Verse 19, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed, us, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Life is achieving one's goals by means of overcoming a series of obstacles. And I think I have come to believe that you know that you're doing God's will and purpose if there are those that are opposing it. If you're facing opposition and obstacles to what you believe God has called you to do, you can be pretty sure you're on the right track. I get scared when everything's going easy. When everything seems to be a piece of cake, that that frightens me. That makes me think I must be on the wrong path. There's going to be opposition. In fact, God, in most instances, sees to it because that's what builds strength in us. In the weeks ahead, we're going to learn a lot about resisting opposition, but there's two summary principles here. First is exposing, exposing the enemy. Uh, Ephesians tells us we're to know our spiritual enemy and uh, resist him and stand against him with the armor that God has given us. But in this particular case, uh, the physical enemy that they could see, these three individuals, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, we're going to hear a lot about them in weeks to come, but the, the cognate root word here of these three names 
Sanballat means prickly. Tobiah means material wealth. Geshem means rain. Now maybe I'm extrapolating just a little bit here, but I think this fits as you'll see as we go on. Sanballat, prickly, bitterness. Tobiah, material, materialism. Geshem, rain. I'm thinking that maybe a contentious person, a contentious spirit. If you think about it, bitterness, materialism, and a contentious spirit. Three forces that bring opposition, whether they come from within us or from another. We need to be aware, we need to call it what it is, and we need to stand against it. And those are the kind of things that destroy our lives and keep us from being effective in God's service. And so we engage the enemy. So I answered them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, his, we, his servants, will arise and build. Ultimately, the battle is not ours, but it's the Lord's. And what follows in the book of Nehemiah is one of the most amazing stories of overcoming obstacles in the records of Scripture. Zerubbabel was a man called by God to return from captivity and build the temple some 50 to 60, 70 years before Nehemiah came to build the wall. And here is what God said to Zerubbabel. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. We pray. We are infected by the need. Nehemiah prayed. We plan. We prepare. We have divine audacity. All of this stuff. But in the end, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So where to begin? Have you begun whatever it is that God has called you to be? to do. Beginning is being half done. (coughs) It begins first by receiving Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. I found it so interesting. When missionaries came to India, they proclaimed that Jesus as God. And they thought that was really cool. All kinds of Hindus in India were getting converted asking Jesus into their life to be their God. It wasn't until into the project a little while they realized that for a Hindu, he was just adding Jesus to his long list of gods. Oh, good, here's another God. It wasn't until they learned that he was the God, the only God, the living God, the creator God, who became a man and died and rose from the dead. Oh, that put a whole different light on things. But without the knowledge of who God was, there was no possibility for them to respond in faith until they understood who God was, who Jesus is. Then they had a decision to make. The God who became a man and died for their sin as an innocent substitute rose again from the dead, demonstrating with power that he was who he said he was, the Son of God. (coughs) Many Hindus have come to faith in Christ, but they came with the knowledge of knowing that he was not just another God, but the eternal God. Have you received that same Jesus?
then getting in tune with his agenda. It also means letting go of any long-standing bitterness. It means facing any debilitating fear that might be a part of your life. It may mean forgiving your spouse, your parents, your children, somebody else. But it means getting in tune with God's agenda for your life, and that includes your life being where it needs to be. Father, if we're going to begin in our lives wherever we are, you've not called any of us, I believe, to build anything as significant as the walls of Jerusalem. But Father, you have called us to, to be Christ for many. As we live our lives before a watching world, we're the only, the only gospel most people will ever read. And that is a very significant thing. And Father, being a child of God is incredibly significant. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit, redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, adopted as the Son of God, joint heir with Christ forever and ever and ever. Father, our significance is, is unbelievable. May we live in the light of that truth. And where there are any obstacles, Father, that are standing between us and you and that project or that need or that whatever, I pray, Father, that you'd bring conviction in our hearts to deal with those issues, that we might be the men and women of God that you intended for us to be. These things I pray in Jesus' name, amen.